We're going to be continuing our study in the book of James this evening. So please turn with me to James chapter 2 if you've closed your Bibles. It's on page 1011, James chapter 2. And whilst you're turning, I've got to say that our topic this evening while studying throughout the week has been both convicting and challenging. James chapter 2. Before we uh, start the preach, let's let's pray together. So Heavenly Father, as we come to the, to the preaching of your word, we pray once again that you will clear our minds of, of any distractions, that you will give us ears to hear and to, to have us understand your word this evening. Father, may you apply what is true to our hearts and have us respond in a way that brings glory to you. In Jesus' name, Amen. So last time we were together looking in the book of James, we observed the importance of being both hearers and doers of the word, didn't we? This means that once someone becomes a believer in Christ, there is a way for a Christian to live. This comes as a response to being born again and by being indwelt by the Holy Spirit. For if God's Spirit is living within someone, you would expect, wouldn't you, that such a life would look very different to someone that has not. And for many here this evening, there are brothers and sisters here in Christ, and I count myself among them, that can give testimony to those changes taking place in our lives. The sin which was once enjoyable has become something that we are ashamed of. The Christian's affections change. Our language changes. Day by day, the power of the Holy Spirit begins to transform believers and becoming more and more like Christ, doesn't it? And it's with this in mind that James, the author of our letter, continues to issue instructions to his readers in how to live the Christian life. Our passage this evening is another one of those instructions in how to, to behave as a Christian. Now, as we begin, it's always important to understand a passage in its original historical context, isn't it? So it's important that we must remember that this is a letter written to a specific group of Christians 2,000 years ago. And as we know, the author is James, we've covered that before, the leader of the church in Jerusalem writing to the believers that had been scattered all across the world at that time, known as the dispersion. But just like with all scripture, as we read this inspired text, we look for the broad, universal application in which we ask ourselves the question, how does this scripture apply to me as a believer here in the West in 2023? How do I become a, a doer of this word as well as a hearer? And as it's a passage that is dealing with sin, it should be important to us, shouldn't it? And this evening, we've come to the part of James's letter where he's concerned about the sin of partiality, otherwise known as favoritism. So let's go to our text, James chapter 2, verse 1. He starts, my brothers, and as we know, James is talking to believers here, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. We'll come back to show no partiality in a few moments, but what is meant by the phrase, hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory? 
Well, it's that faith that qualifies for, for recipients to be called brothers in the first place, isn't it? Unity held between one Christian to another is that found in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's that faith that bonds one believer to another. As soon as someone becomes a Christian, they're, they're grafted into a, a new family with God the Father as our Father and with Jesus as our elder brother, along with every other Christian as your new brother and sister. When we become a Christian, you join a really big family. And it's with that that this then leads into the example of the wealthy and the poor man being treated differently in our texts. Verse 1, my brothers show no partiality. As we've said, partiality, another way of saying it is favoritism. And favoritism is when someone shows undue preference or respect to someone over somebody else. It's what happens when we lift someone else up, often at somebody else's expense. And as we'll see, we are all prone to do this in the flesh. We, for various different reasons, tend to treat people differently dependent on who they are and this is at odds with the God of the Bible whom is impartial so this is something that we need to think carefully about this evening because it impacts us both individually and as a local church here in Eastbourne now as Christians we should be impressionally and encouraged by what we see of God in one another and not the outward appearance like how the world tends to judge people and that's what's happening in our passage isn't it we know that the law does not deal with people based on their reputation, their job title, their fame, their, their bank balance, or the amount of Instagram followers that they have. No. God calls every single person to repent and to put their faith upon the Lord Jesus Christ. God is impartial. In Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 17, we read, For the Lord your God... Your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. In Acts chapter 10, verse 34, Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. God is impartial, but man is partial by nature. And when you were a child, it's possible that this could have been the number one frustration in your life. The sense of injustice, should a, a sibling get better treatment than you? I see this in my own family when it comes to slicing a cake for pudding and dividing it into pieces. If someone gets a bigger slice, then whoa. But maybe at school there was a classmate that was known to be the teacher's favourite. And then as you grow up and enter the workplace, you realise that it's no different. Overlooked by the bosses who seem to pick out their favourites for special treatment. Being on the receiving end of such behaviour can be distressing and damaging. And it's a, an action of the flesh and not of God. And it's with this in mind that James wants to ensure that this type of behaviour is locked out of the church. Because the local church is to be the, the one place where the acceptance that God himself gives to men and women is reflected in our acceptance of one another. Now in the example we're given in our passage, we're shown how a, 
a rich man is treated differently to a poor man when entering an assembly, aren't we? And it's such a fleshy reaction, isn't it? But you can see the trap in its meaning. Remember, the majority of the people within the original audience of this letter were not wealthy people. We remember that for most, they were forced to leave Israel quickly. They would have been having to start off life again from scratch and just carrying their belongings with them. So when there's a financial need, how much more does the temptation to, to focus on someone who is wealthy increase? And if it helps, put it into our context. We, we all know the things that we need as a, as a church here in South Street, don't we? We need more people to help serve and to, to help out in different areas, children's workers and, and musicians. If someone turns up looking like the complete package in one of these areas, there could be a temptation, couldn't there, to, to get a bit excited and to start to show this person favoritism. And that would be completely wrong, as we can see from our passage, because look how it unfolds. Verse 3. What said to the rich man, you sit here in a good place, whilst you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves? and become judges with evil thoughts. It's very easy for partiality to embed itself into a culture, and the local church is not immune to that. And as per our passage, being attracted by wealth is not an unknown temptation, is it? For the love of money is the root of all what? Evil. I know of one church where a a wealthy church member was asked to be an elder based on no other qualification other than the fact that they were successful in business and were generously given to the church every month. That's the fruit of this kind of thinking, and what a disaster that is. The local church doesn't need CEOs or, or marketing experts to, to run it as if it was some sort of business. The local church needs biblically qualified godly men who are prepared to stand up and preach the word of God whatever the cost. And in the world at large, wealth so often equals influence. But that ought not to be the case in the local church. This isn't just about good church practice. This is talking about sin. The sin of partiality, showing favoritism to someone. And it is this sin, the sin of partiality, just like every other sin, but now Jesus to the cross. So we have to take it very seriously, don't we? Read from verse 8 to get a real sense of this. If you really fulfill the royal law, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbour as yourself, you are doing well. Verse 9, but if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. Now, if we've missed the point so far, this should show us the importance of our passage, shouldn't it? And the seriousness of the sin of partiality. Because like just, any, like just like any other sin, it's a sin against our holy God. This isn't something to shrug our shoulders at and to, to minimise because it doesn't seem as serious as other sins. No. There isn't a category for that kind of thinking in the Bible, is there? Maybe this reminds us of the the Sermon on the Mount. Just as Jesus stood there speaking about adultery, there would have been people listening with a, a prideful spirit rising up. 
Well, I've never committed adultery before. But what did Jesus say? He said, I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. This is about the heart and this is about sin and it should drive us to the foot of the cross. Verse 9 is an evidence of this. If you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. That's how serious this is. Brothers and sisters, let this be a reminder to us that this evening that if, if it was possible to go through life and only commit the sin of partiality and no other sin, then we have still fallen short of the glory of God. We would have still committed cosmic treason towards the holy God of the universe and would be found guilty on the day of judgment. This is as serious as any other sin and it's against a holy, holy, holy God. There are no respectable sins. There are no sins that God only half cares about. If you're a Christian, then every single sin has been paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ upon that cross and there's nothing small or respectable about that. It can become far too easy, can't it, for, for us to, 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 to hide our sins from other people. Staying clear of the so-called big visible sins but can become complacent regarding the so-called respectable sins. There's no such thing. God forbid we become prideful because we're not like those sinners over there. Like all sin, we need to be on guard when it comes to the sin of partiality, don't we? Because what does our passage say? Show no partiality. How much partiality? None. None. Now, to be as helpful as we can, making a distinction between people's wealth is only one way in which we can commit the sin of partiality, isn't it? Because this can come in all shapes and sizes. Partiality can show up in how we treat people with different skin tones or accents, how we treat people from different backgrounds or, or with different job titles. But just how unchristlike is that? Very. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 22, page number 827. Now, the context here, as we know, is that the Pharisees and the, the Sadducees were taking it in turns to, to try and catch Jesus out. We see that in verse 15. The Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. That's talking about Jesus. And they sent their, disciple, they sent their disciples to him, along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully, and you do not care about anyone's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearances. Can you see that? Not only did Jesus have a reputation for hanging out with sinners, he was also known for not being swayed by people's appearances. That's what good looks like. This is what we should want to emulate. This is what we should be striving for. Not being swayed by people's appearances. And it's important, isn't it? Because as we have the scripture hold a, a mirror up to our own lives and we have it examine our own hearts, 
can we truly say the same thing? For we are not swayed by appearances. It's a challenge, is there? Are there certain types of people that we are automatically hard-hearted towards? Of Jesus, they said, for you are not swayed by appearances. And it's true, isn't it? But we live at a time where some people in the world are choosing a lifestyle that is dramatically crashing against the biblical worldview. In our postmodern culture where we, where we live in, the, the world says that you, if you want to identify as something or someone else, then that's fine, regardless of what the Bible says. Not only fine, but it's to be celebrated. And this has borne the fruit of people having all sorts of appearances, hasn't it? People wanting to change sex and change species, or even wanting to become disabled in something known as transabled. Something that used to be niche and rare is now gathering momentum and at an alarming rate, isn't it? Schools, as we know, are encouraging children to engage with these ideas. And according to one article in the independent newspaper last year, 87% of the 6,394 secondary school teachers that were polled said they had at least one transgender pupil in their class. Now this means that it's only a matter of time before we, as a local church, are coming into contact with people where this is a very real situation. People that need our help. But what is the solution to their and our biggest problem? It's for Lord Jesus Christ, isn't it? And can we forget this? Could it be said that at times we can become partial when it comes to sin? Can we begin to develop a, a different category in our minds for people that are living sexually immoral lives? And if we do, then maybe we've forgotten what the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? As we know, he begins to write a list. As well as the sexually immoral, he lists idolaters and adulterers and thieves, the greedy, drunkards, swindlers. And this is not an exhaustive list. But what does he say after making this list? And such were some of you. He's addressing the church in Corinth. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. And you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And this is the good news of the gospel, for we know that no one is outside of the, the, the power and the reach of the gospel. Jesus came to save sinners from all walks of life, and there is no radioactive sin that should repel us away from wanting to see someone saved, regardless of how visible their lifestyle may be. We know our Bibles, we know that the only real distinction with eternal consequences is whether somebody is in Christ or not. But for every waking moment that someone is still alive, there is a hope, isn't there, that the Lord may grant someone repentance and faith. Now I know that it's a temptation for churches to, to want to grow numerically by having ready-made, theologically sound, well-rounded people walk through the door. That's not what we're called to do, and nor is it realistic. The church grows when the Lord adds to it by bringing sinners of every kind to repentance and faith. 
And I'm sure that we all love reading or hearing those dramatic testimonies from someone that used to live in such a, a lifestyle before being born again. But are we, are we as a local church prepared to get our hands dirty? Or are we just ready to condemn someone as too far gone? Is that not partiality? We know, don't we, that there isn't a, a Damascus Road type of experience for the certain types of sinners which eliminates the hard work of discipleship from the local church. No. Just like we would with anyone, we are to share the gospel and to encourage all sinners to repentance and faith in the one whom came to save sinners. Now, I've got to say, it really upsets me when I hear people written off as if God's grace isn't powerful enough for some people. I'm sure that you've you've seen it yourself. Don't bother with that Jehovah Witness or, or that Muslim. They'll never change. But that's absolute rubbish, isn't it? The God that I know and love can and will transform any life he wills, regardless of how much of a, a shipwreck they've made of their life so far. That's our experience, isn't it? Think about it. Did you respond the first time that you heard the gospel? I know I didn't. It took more than 35 years for the Lord to reveal my great need for Christ. But woe to me. Woe to me if someone had the attitude of, or oh, he's already been told he's too far gone. Or if they looked at all my tattoos and decided for me that I wouldn't be interested. We must never have that attitude. Who are we to, to give up on people? And if you find yourself doing that, repent of it. To withhold the life-giving gospel from someone because we think that someone is too bad or that they won't be interested is a disaster and it means that our view of God is way too small. And it's easily done, isn't it? And I'm talking to myself here as much as anyone. How in the street when we're engaging with people, it's far too easy to start weighing people up as they edge your way as to whether or not they'll be interested based on their appearance. I confess there's been times that I've actually winced as I've given out a tract. What does the Bible say? We are not to be ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Everyone who believes. And there is one gospel, and there is one cross, and every single person that has ever lived needs it as much as the next person, don't they? Now, for sure, some people's sins are, are more visible than others, but that doesn't make them any more needy than the next person. Someone who may wear their sin as an act of pride is in no greater need of the gospel than the sweet old lady who's been going to church all her life. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. None is righteous. No, not one. No one seeks after God. All have turned aside. No one does good, not even one. So we have to remember these things to avoid in becoming puffed up Pharisees. Imagine being like that church that looks to weigh people's sins or, or usefulness at the door before we decide how we'll welcome them, because that's what we're dealing with in our passage this evening. Absolutely not. The local church is a hospital for sinners, not a museum of the saints. It's the sin of man that qualifies us for the need of the gospel in the first place, isn't it? What did Jesus say in Luke chapter 5? 
Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Jesus said, I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Let us, rem not, let us remember that by the grace of God, what kind of monster that we were capable of becoming without God's restraining hand on our lives. Let's not become self-righteous and forget what we have personally been forgiven of in our own lives. We're not so thankful to the Lord that we are saved by grace and not by works. We're not so thankful that the Lord shows no partiality. We need to remember this before being tempted to turn our noses up at someone, don't we? As we draw to a close, turn with me to, to Luke chapter 18. It's on page 877. It's Luke chapter 18, verse 9. Jesus told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Verse 10. Two men went into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. The posture of the tax collector is where we want to be, isn't it? when we remember what we are and who we have sinned against. It's then that we remember that we are beggars showing other beggars where the food is. And how can we then dare show partiality when we remember this? And as we look to be doers of the word, how do we apply this? When we welcome and minister and love all who come to be with us, does, this doesn't then mean that we compromise on biblical truths. That we then, out of a posture of not wanting to be offensive, begin to, to sugarcoat the gospel? No, absolutely not. We know that there are plenty of churches and denominations going down that disastrous road. But we remember that the starting point in becoming a follower of Christ is responding in repentance and faith. Our job as believers is to scatter the seed of the gospel generously to everyone we can, for we do not know who the Lord is calling. Just like in the case of the Apostle Paul, the, the, the chief of sinners, he can look like the most unlikely of people to respond. And in doing this, it will keep us from falling foul of verse 4 in our passage this evening. Making distinctions among yourselves and becoming judges with evil thoughts. Brothers and sisters, we are to preach Christ crucified we are to cast the gospel seed and to pray, for it is the Lord that provides the good soil. It's the Lord that gives the increase, isn't it? It's the power of the gospel that transforms lives. And if you're sitting here as a born-again Christian here this evening, then you're doing so only because of the grace of an impartial God.
Let's pray.